Well, that's some good stuff right there. We're going to go down to the river and pray in just a minute. A um, couple of things I want to say before I get started, however, is one is there is, if you're not familiar with Elam Christian Ministries and would like to know more, there is a table in the lobby. Uh, even for those of you who do think you know everything, I bet you don't. Um, and you can grab brochures, talk with somebody, uh, learn more about the ministry out there. We're ha- happy to have you do that. And, and what Greg was talking about, this um, devotional that you can you know, have texted to you, this is what life has come to these days. It's a great thing to be able to be gone on spring break and still connected to your church and be able to do these devotions and so on. It also reminds me that on any given Sunday through our live streaming, uh, between like 50 or 200 hits are on the live stream. And if someone's somewhere else, like Florida or whatever, there might be six people. It's one hit, but six people in the living room watching or whatever the case might be. Um, and I have people who are you know, keeping track of me to make sure I'm here on a regular basis by watching li- live stream. So that's an accountability factor. My mom measures everything I say when she watches. So um, it really is quite an amazing thing to stay connected to your church, even when you're not physically present in your church. It's not a substitute for being physically present, but it is a great way to be present even when you can't be present. We are um, in the middle of this series of sermons um, entitled Becoming People of Prayer. And the title is really important of this series. It's not Learning to Pray. It's not more information about prayer. It's becoming people of prayer, becoming people who engage in this practice of prayer. And prayer is the lifeline that God has given us to himself. And prayer is the conduit through which the love and mercy and grace of God flow into our hearts and minds. It's vital to a Christ follower. And we're going to look at an aspect of prayer today using Psalm 1. Um, and then some other passages of Scripture as we go along. But, but first, let's look at Psalm 1 together so we have a context for what I'm going to talk about today. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now the simplest definition of prayer is communication with God. It's having a conversation with God about what's going on in our lives, about what's taking place. But conversations are really interesting, aren't they not? It's not something that we're hoping that God listens to. I mean, John Calvin, to paraphrase what Calvin says about prayer, says that it's not to inform God about what's going on in our life as if he doesn't know, nor is it to encourage him to act or perform on our behalf. But prayer is for us. It's to hear ourselves speak our hearts and minds and in so doing understanding through listening to God, God's perspective on life for us. So prayer is conversation. And we're familiar with all sorts of different kinds of conversations, right? So there are casual conversations that we have. It's the kind of polite conversation that you might engage in with someone uh, while you're in line at the coffee shop or while you're riding an elevator you ever notice what happens in an elevator? No, everybody looks forward. No one wants to talk. Don't get in an elevator with me <laughs> if you don't want to talk. You know, I always think it's great. You've got a captive audience. You know, you can engage in conversation. You take people off guard because they don't want to talk. 
But if you just kind of, if you stand where they're looking, it's hard for them to avoid you, right? <laughs> These kind of casual conversations, even though um, depends on where they're engaged in, they can be engaged in the lobby after church oftentimes, are really superficial conversations. We kind of stay on the surface, safe topics, no de- uh, depth in really involved, no politics, no religion, nothing too personal. And then there are one-way conversations. One-way conversations are the kind of conversations that we have with supervisors or that coaches have with players or that some of us have with particular siblings in our families. They're going to tell us what they want us to hear. They don't want any feedback. They don't want to listen to anything we have to say. They're not inviting really any kind of thing from us. They're just going to tell us what they want us to know, and we're supposed to listen. It's a, it's a one-way conversation. Most teenagers are familiar with these kind of conversations that they have with their parents. There are strategic conversations, right? Those that you have with colleagues or boards or task forces or with someone with whom you're making some kind of plan where you're sharing information, you're thinking about how to use it, you're making a plan for the future, you're drawing out conclusions, you're dreaming things together. They're very strategic. You're trying to accomplish something and and you're making a path to get there. And then there are in-depth conversations. Conversations with people where we share our hopes and our dreams and our fears and our doubts and our weaknesses and our struggles. These are the conversations that we have with people that we trust and who we know care for us and truly love us. Hopefully all of us have someone or a couple of someones with whom we can have in-depth conversations, with whom we can share whatever is on our heart and mind, where we can be completely vulnerable with them. And by definition, conversation or communication always contains two elements. Speaking on the one hand and listening on the other. And intimacy is established when people not only listen to the words that we say, but to the meanings and the thoughts and the fears and the dreams that are behind the words that we say. Those in-depth conversations are the foundation for intimacy. So logically speaking, then, prayer as conversation should always contain two elements, right? If you're going to have a conversation with God, it's got to have two things. It's got to have the speaking part, which we're really good at. We're good at speaking to God in prayer. But to have a real conversation, you also need to do some listening. We're not quite as good as at listening to God. And when we hear people use certain phrases, right, like, God spoke to me or I heard God's voice, or this is what God said, or I have God's instruction, we kind of scratch our head a little bit and think that's kind of odd. What do you mean you heard the voice of God? How did that work that you hear the voice of God? What does the voice of God sound like? How did God tell you this? It's not very common for us to listen to God. So how do you listen to God? How does God speak to us? When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, as we covered in the Lord's Prayer over the last couple of weeks, how do we know what God's kingdom looks like unless we're willing to listen to what he tells us? Oftentimes, God's kingdom looks like what we think the kingdom should look like. God, let me tell you what your kingdom should be, how it should be ordered, and what we should be doing, because I have a really good idea about what your kingdom should look like. 
Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. And you can't seek God's kingdom unless you're listening for God's instruction about what his kingdom might look like. Now, my guess is, my sense is, that everyone here in the room today would like to be blessed by God, right? Raise your hand if you want to be blessed by God, right? Everybody wants to be blessed by God. All right? What did Psalm 1 say? It begins with those words, right? Blessed. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Blessed is, it starts out, blessed, you're blessed if you don't do these things. If you want God's blessing, don't do that. It's the boundaries that are being set. It's instruction that is being given. It's God's outline for what his kingdom might look like. First, avoid these things. And then... But those who delight in the law of the Lord or the word of God or God's instruction and who meditate on his law day and night, that's how you're blessed. Meditating on God's law day and night. Listening to God means that we're spending some time in God's word, that we're delighting in the law of the Lord. Not just the Ten Commandments, not just the law as we might know them, but all of God's word, including his living word in the person of Jesus Christ. And not just delighting in the word of the Lord, but meditating on it day and night. Now, meditation is, you know, kind of a taboo subject in many Christian circles. In fact, if you Google Christian meditation, what you get is mostly arguments against even participating or doing it. Because when we hear the word meditation in contemporary culture, the first thing we think about is um, Eastern religions, or in particular transcendental meditation, where um, you receive a mantra or focus on a particular word, and by doing so you can be led to a higher level of consciousness, and in doing so you receive all sorts of personal benefits, right? I mean, you're no longer anxious, You receive peace, you're relieved from stress, and so on. These are the goals of transcendental meditation. And Christians don't monkey with that stuff. So we don't meditate at all. We've taken meditation out of the vocabulary of what it means to be a Christ follower. And yet over and over and over and over again, the Bible tells us to meditate on the Word of God. And so we really can't take it out of our vocabulary if God keeps forcing it upon us. In fact, not only here in Psalm 1 are we told to meditate, but in in Joshua chapter 1, we're commanded to meditate. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Not like try, not like maybe you should encourage this or something. Meditate. Do it. Do it. Keep the book of the law always on your lips and meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, meditation actually is a a long and valued practice in the history of Christianity. When you look back in the history of Christianity, there's a whole element of history uh, with the Desert Fathers, for instance. Back in the 4th century, where meditation was basically the focus of their life, where they took these words of the psalmist and Joshua very seriously, where they not only read the law of God and His Word, but they meditated on it day and night. That's what they did. Teresa of Avila is known 
as a proponent of meditation, and even more contemporary Christians like Thomas Merton and Dallas Willard recommend meditation to us as Christ's followers. In fact, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren describes meditation this way. He says that meditation is focused thinking. It takes serious effort. Maybe that's why we don't like to do it. It takes serious effort. You select a verse and you reflect on it over and over in your mind. This is great. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. I mean, isn't that right? That, that's what worry's about, right? If you've got a problem in your life or you're, you're concerned about something, you know, you focus on it day and night. It's going, those words are constantly going, that scenario is constantly going through your mind. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. You just got to replace it with something. God's Word, the Scriptures are the way that God speaks to us. And it's meant to be an in-depth conversation. Meditation is different than just doing our devotions. Because often when we do our devotions, we'll read a passage and perhaps some commentary on the passage and someone else's idea about what it means, and then we'll quickly go through a list of things that we want to pray about, and then we'll move on. It's not a bad thing, but doing our devotions is different than meditating on the Word of God day and night. And I know this is going to sound demanding, but meditation actually requires some time as well as effort, Rick Warren says. You've got to take some time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's not like you put the Bible in a microwave, punch in the time, and God spits out what he wants you to know. Before we can engage in meditation, before we can truly listen to God, Timothy Keller says that we have to answer two questions about whatever text of Scripture we're using. If we're supposed to mull this text of Scripture, these verses over in our mind over and over again, you've you got to know the answer to these two questions first, and that is, what did the original author intend to convey to the readers in this passage? What is meant? And then secondly, what role does this text play in the whole Bible, or salvation history, as theologians call it? How does it contribute to the gospel message and move along the main narrative arc of the Bible, which climaxes in the salvation of Jesus? How does it fit? What is meant to the original hearers, and how does this fit in the whole salvation? If we can answer those two questions, then we can meditate on the Word of God. Because what's going to happen if we don't answer those two questions first? We'll meditate on our understanding and our interpretation of what the Word means, and then we'll be headed in completely the wrong direction and get off course, and we'll end up in Milwaukee. And who wants to go there? So it's like this juxtaposition that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you're familiar with this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes Jesus says, you have heard that it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said is, is a human interpretation of what they thought that God meant. And over the years, they got completely off guard. You've heard it said. So one of, one of the phrases in the Sermon on the Mount is, you've heard that it says, thou shalt not kill. Right? You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Don't do it. But I tell you. Don't even be angry with someone. Well, that's a completely different idea than just avoiding killing somebody. And it raises all sorts of other questions, and it stretches us not just into conversation with Jesus, but now he's helping us understand what his kingdom is about. His kingdom is about a place where, where we're not even maliciously angry with people. And if we are and find ourselves there, we've got to figure out a way to deal with that because, because Christ followers 
Don't hold on to malicious anger. Because when we do, it's as bad as killing someone. So it's not just the comfort that God brings us, but it's helping us understand and stretches us into his kingdom and offers a completely different understanding of what life might look like if we are going to be a Christ follower. It tells us that that God cares about us and that God doesn't want us to harm anyone. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, Paul gives us an example of um, meditating and listening to God at the same time and being stretched and not only comforted, but stretched into what God's kingdom looked like. He begins by saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For this reason, I'm going to spend some time in prayer and I'm going to meditate and reflect on who God is and what God wants for me in life. And this is the direction that my meditation is going to take me. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all fullness of God. In Paul's prayer and meditation here, as he kneels before the Father, it's not a list of, well, here's who's on my prayer list. Here's who's sick. Here's who's ailing. Here's who's in a state state of difficulty. Here, Here are all the problems that I'm facing in life. You know, not that those things, that God doesn't want to hear about those things, but the focus here is on spiritual growth, on connection with the Father, on being part of the kingdom. That Paul takes us into an area through prayer that we would never enter into naturally ourselves. The essence of life, however, the quality that gives us the right perspective that we need, the thing that we can really rely on to hold us together is God's love and the depth of our soul because that's what gives us strength no matter what circumstances life brings. So what are the benefits of meditation? When reflecting on the benefits, Rick Warren writes that no other habit can do more to transform your life and make you more like Jesus than daily reflection on Scripture. If you look up all the times that God speaks about meditation in the Bible, you'll be amazed at the benefits that he's promised to those who take time to reflect on his word throughout the day. Bruce Demarest has written a book entitled Satisfying Your Soul. And he says that a quieted heart is our best preparation for all this work of God. Meditation refocuses us from ourselves and from the world so that we reflect on God's Word, His nature, His abilities, and His works. So that we prayerfully ponder and muse and chew on the words of Scripture. The goal of meditation is to simply permit the Holy Spirit to activate the life-giving Word of God. So the question you might be asking is, what does this look like? So I thought I'd take some time to tell you this. And Greg just realized that we forgot a very important element of what we were going to do this morning. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that people recommend when they talk about meditation is a consistent place that you go. And some of them 
You probably thought this chair, what's this junky chair just sitting out on the stage for and a coffee cup on it? Who, who forgot about that, right? There's a purpose for everything. We just made this one up. But, but one of the things others emphasize is um, not just a place, not just a room, but a chair. Like, for instance, Bill Hybels makes a big deal out of his chair. He has this rocking chair that he uses, and he's going to pass his chair on to his kids and then to his grandkids. And um, he does write about uh, the chair he uses at his cottage, which is the booth at Burger King. But he goes to the same place every day. And he sits in his chair. And the recommendation is that you start your day this way. Thus, you need a cup of coffee. Well, at least I do. And that you quiet yourself for a few minutes. And some of you have to get up really early to find a quiet place in your house. It might require 15 minutes early out of your life or 30 minutes early in your life, but it's a small price to pay to connect with God, right? And there's lots of different ways that we can reflect on Scripture and things that we can use. I, I have a book that I regularly use called Seeking God's Face, which is a, a publication from Faith Alive and it has a different devotional focus for every day. As you well know, today is the fifth Sunday in Lent. Moving toward Easter. And the recommendation for us is to focus on Psalm 30, the first five verses today. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord my God, I, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead, and you spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And every day the book recommends this under the heading of dwelling, dwelling in the Word of God. Read the scripture again slowly. Find a word or a phrase that catches your eye or moves your heart. Slowly repeat it. Pray your thoughts and your desires, your needs and the feelings that come from your meditation, and enjoy the presence of your Lord and Savior. Now, because it's Sunday morning, and we're worshiping, and I'm preaching, and we're on a time frame, I'm going to accelerate the process a little bit, but I had spent some time doing this earlier in the week with this passage And something else might grab you out of Psalm 30, verses 1 through 5. But if we can go back to the first slide of Psalm 30, this is what I heard the other day. That God lifted me out of the depths and does not let my enemies gloat over me. And as I reflected on those things, the first 
thing that God said to me was, well, who are your enemies? Who do I consider to be enemies? Could be people. Could be a particular situation where I feel that myself or someone in my family is under attack. An enemy could be a physical illness. Could be emotional turmoil. Could be an uncooperative colleague or person. Who are our enemies? And then God reminded me that, you know, he lifts us out of the depths. Our enemies drag us down, but God lifts us out of the depths. And so I began to think, how, how many times hasn't God already done that in my life? And I began to think about the times where I was in the pit and God lifted me out. And sometimes it took a long time to lift me out. But God always, always, always lifts us out of the depths. And our enemies never win. Isn't that what we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks at Easter? That enemies never ultimately win? And then God gave me this question. Rev, what does it mean when Jesus says to love your enemies? It's one thing to write them down in anger and to think about all the things that are bad that are my enemies, and I'm going to attack them. <laughs> but what does it mean when Jesus said to love your enemies? And is that the way he lifts us out of the depths is when he gets us to turn the corner to love our enemies and at the end of the time that I was spending with God meditating on this passage of scripture I couldn't help but think about how much God loves me We can't sing that song and worship, blessed be your name. We can never sing that song without me being moved to tears. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, blessed be the name of the Lord. When it feels like my enemies are winning, blessed be the name of the Lord. When it's hard to love my enemies, blessed be the name of the Lord. Intimacy is not instantaneous. But God tells us over and over and over again to spend time meditating on his word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And so, O oh Lord, we give you thanks. For you are a God of love and grace and mercy. We thank you for your many good gifts. 
for not only your written word, which has been preserved over thousands and thousands of years, but more importantly for your living word, the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for stretching us, for not only embracing us with your love and your mercy and your grace, but challenging us to be different and bigger people in the world to help us to understand what tough love is all about and to what your kingdom might look like, which is very different than what our kingdom might look like. Bless us as we meditate on your word and understand your law and live into your promises. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand.